Welcome to the History of Christianity podcast with Stephen Bedard. This episode is a part of a series of lectures that I gave for a course on Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels at Tyndale University College in Toronto. I encourage you to check out the webpage for that program, which is tyndale.ca slash dcp, and also check out my webpage at historyofchristianitypodcast.com. And if you want to support this podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash hopesreason and support in any way you are able. Thank you, and God bless. And we're going to jump right into Matthew. So as I mentioned before, Matthew is the most Jewish of all the Gospels. He's very interested in how Jesus fulfills prophecy. Now, we're going to look at these prophecies because they're kind of complicated. They're not always as simple as uh, the Old Testament says, at some point in the future, X will do Y. And then we get to Jesus and he does Y. Therefore, he's fulfilled the prophecy. It's usually not as simple as that. The kind of prophecy that Matthew talks about is very often more of a typology in that there is a fulfillment that's actually in the Old Testament, but then there is this greater fulfillment in Jesus. So it's not as if uh, the Jewish people who are reading the Old Testament were thinking, well, there's all these unfulfilled prophecies. We're waiting for someone to fulfill these prophecies. Oh, there, Jesus is doing it. Uh, I mean, sometimes there's that, but it's not always as clear as that, and we'll we'll get into that. Uh, We also find that Matthew speaks about the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of God. Now, I think he he mentions the kingdom of God two times or four times. I think it's twice. Uh, Most often, though, it's the kingdom of heaven. And when you look in something like the Gospel Parallel here, you'll see that when they're talking about the exact same passage, the exact same story... Matthew will have the kingdom of heaven, and Mark and Luke will have the kingdom of God. Now, some people have tried to differentiate them and to say the kingdom of heaven means this, the kingdom of God means that. I don't see how you can do that, because it seems pretty clear when you compare the passages side by side that they are talking about the same thing. The confusing part about that, though, is that now, today, when we talk about the kingdom of God, what do people think of? They think of heaven, right? The kingdom of God is in heaven. Because, well, Matthew talks about it as the kingdom of heaven. But the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about the afterlife when he talks about the kingdom of heaven. The reason Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven is Jewish people are very sensitive about the name of God. So we talked about Yahweh. The reason why it's written Lord in our Old Testament, that comes from the Jewish tradition when they get to those passages and they're reading them in Hebrew, instead of saying Yahweh, you say Adonai. Adonai is Hebrew for Lord. Because you have to be very careful how you say the name of God. You'll never hear a Jewish person say Yahweh. If they're a religious Jew, uh, they, won't, uh, they won't speak that. Uh, sometimes even when they're writing God, they'll do G-D to be careful how they're using the, the name of God. And so that's really what Matthew is doing. He's replacing God with heaven as a reverent way of describing it. So it, it, he's not when he says the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about the place of heaven. He's using heaven as another name for God. So it would be like 
you know, if I'm uh, anticipating the, the hard work you're going to do on your research paper, and I say, oh, my class, haven't helped them. When I say haven't helped them, I mean God helped them, right? I'm not saying the plate, the afterlife helped them, or whatever. I mean God helped them. Heaven's just another way of referring to God. And that's what Matthew is doing, because he's probably writing to a Jewish Christian audience who is very sensitive about this. Uh, one of the interesting things about Matthew is he sometimes has a double of what is happening in other stories. So, for example, the, uh, the demoniac, uh, the one who has the legion of demons, in Mark and Luke, it is one of them. Matthew has two. There's a, a story of a blind man calling out to Jesus. Mark and Luke, it's one. In Matthew, it's two. Uh, when Jesus comes in on the donkey, uh, on the triumphant entry, uh, it seems to be in Mark and Luke that, he's, uh, that there's just one. Uh, in Matthew, there's two. Now, why is that? Well, I want you to do a research paper on it and tell me. That's what I'm looking for. Uh, it might have something to do with the importance of uh, having, including two as being a legal witness. I, I think that maybe something like that is going on there. But it's a pretty complicated discussion, and we don't really want to get into that right now. People have noticed that there are five discourses in Matthew. That there's these five sections of teaching that, uh, that are found there. So the first one is from Matthew 5 to 7, and that's uh, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Then Matthew 10, uh, Matthew 13, Matthew 18, and then Matthew 23 to 25. Although Matthew 24, in some ways, is its own thing, the Olivet Discourse, which is a bunch of teaching on the, uh, both the destruction of the temple and uh, the coming of the Son of Man, so the return of Jesus. But that chapter really is interconnected with the, the chapter before it and the chapter after it. So there are these five discourses. Some people have looked at that and said, well, five, that's interesting, because uh, we have the five books of Moses. Is Matthew presenting a, uh, a new Torah, a new Pentateuch? Well, a lot of scholars are kind of skeptical of that, that probably Matthew wasn't really trying to do that. However, we can't deny that there are five discourses. And I suspect that Matthew, as someone who's very interested in the Jewish heritage of the faith, that he would like that five thing. So he might not consciously be thinking, oh, this is the new Torah. But he might be thinking, wow, five, that works out really nice. I like that. Something to, to keep in mind. But there are definitely five, five discourses. So here's a, an example of how uh, prophecy is fulfilled. And this is just in time for us for, for Christmas. But anyways, we're talking about the, uh, the virgin birth here. And, uh, and then Matthew says, This all happened so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Look, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which means... God with us. And we look at that and we think, oh, that is so good. That is so good. There in Isaiah, Isaiah had prophesied that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Not only would he be born of a virgin, but he would be Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate. There it is. It's all fulfilled in Jesus. And then we point to our non-Christian friends. There you go. It's the proof. Bow the knee right now because you see that this is the fulfillment of prophecy. 
And sometimes that happens. But what happens if that person actually goes back to Isaiah and reads it in context? Because what is happening there, Isaiah is speaking to the king. The king's all upset because there's an enemy army around. And he just, like, you know, where is God in all this? Like, you know, we really need God to come through. Because the times are desperate. And Isaiah says, hold on, let me tell you. Things are going to be okay because a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. Now, how does that help this king, who's got an army around his city, for Isaiah to say, let me tell you, in a few centuries from now, God will create a virgin birth and a Messiah will be born. That helps the king in no way at all. Also, the other problem is, in that passage in Isaiah, the word that's used, that's translated virgin here, doesn't really mean virgin. It can, but it really means young woman. That's the, the literal meaning of it. It's Alma, is the Hebrew word. So it, when a, uh, a Jewish person or a Hebrew read that passage in Isaiah, they wouldn't necessarily look, oh, this means that a girl without any assistance from a male, will give birth. It does not require that when you read it in Hebrew. Now, that doesn't mean that Matthew's just making this up. Uh, when it was translated into Greek in the Septuagint, the word that was used there to translate Alma was the Greek word Parthenos, which means virgin. And so Matthew is, is using that. So going back to Isaiah, the, the, the original prophecy of Isaiah really was to the king, listen, there's a young woman, and she's going to give birth to a son. And then it continues on, and it says, by the time this son is able to do this, that, and the other thing, God will have come through and have rescued you from this enemy army. So, there actually was a fulfillment in Isaiah's day in that a young woman did give birth to a baby, and by the time the baby was a certain age, God came through and, and rescued uh, the people. So, it was already fulfilled, but it is being fulfilled in an entirely new way here in Jesus. Matthew is able to, to uh, look back and to see in the virgin birth of Jesus a greater fulfillment. And that's why I talk about this as being typology. And so we have to be very careful when we're sharing about these prophecies, because if we if we offer this as a prophecy without any explanation, all the person has to do is go back to the prophecy, look at what the original context was, and say, well, that's, it doesn't require a literal virgin birth in Isaiah. Uh, so that it, it's just a lot more complicated. So anyways, that'd be a great topic for you to, to write on if you're, if you're interested in that and how Matthew sees fulfillment. This is another example when it talks about how they ended up, uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus have to go to Egypt to get away because of the danger. And uh, he stays there until Herod dies. And then uh, Matthew says, this fulfills what the, prophecy said, uh, what the prophet said, I called my son out of Egypt. Now you look at the original prophecy, it doesn't seem to be talking about Messiah as a child uh, hiding in Egypt. And then coming, because I called my son out of Egypt is actually a reference to Israel. Israel was called out of Egypt in the Exodus. But 
Matthew sees in that a type of Jesus. Just as God called Israel out of Egypt, now God is calling his son, his, his literal son. So it's being fulfilled in a new way. So, you know, it's a little bit fuzzier than maybe we want with our post-enlightenment, uh, our desire for, for uh, things being precise and neat and tidy and just fitting together perfectly. But we need to read this in, with a Hebrew mindset, in a first century mindset. And actually, if you read the other things that were being written around this time, like the Dead Sea Scrolls and whatever, uh, and, and how the Jewish people understood fulfillment of prophecy, these writers are not making things up. That's the way they understood prophecy. Like if you read the interpretations uh, within the Dead Sea Scroll, you look at, at how they say certain things were fulfilled, like uh, prophecies in Habakkuk, how that has to do with the Romans and all this kind of other stuff. Actually, the, uh, what we find among the, uh, the Christian writers in the New Testament, the way they interpret the Old Testament is extremely conservative compared to what their contemporary Jews were, were doing. So that's uh, something we need to, to keep in mind. Look at, continuing on with, uh, with Matthew, uh, Sermon on the Mount is one of the most uh, important passages in Matthew, in the Bible really, and there's so much good things for us to look at. We're not going to spend a lot of time in there, but I hope that one of you will write on that. But that is, a, that is a, an extremely important uh, section. If you're really interested in it, a, a good book on that is uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's uh, Cost of Discipleship, which is a writing basically on all of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And there's a, a lot of really, really good things in that. Part of the Sermon on the Mount is the Beatitudes. <coughs> so like, blessed are the peacemakers and, and so on. So uh, that's a, an interesting thing that, uh, about blessing. So generally blessing means something very specific. So some translations will put happy is, and happy is maybe not the, the best translation of bless, but at least it can um, give you an idea of the kind of things that can be blessed. Because really in the Bible there are two things that get blessed and that is God and people. So we bless food, right? You know, you, we bless our turkeys at Thanksgiving and at Christmas. But you can't, unless you can make something happy, you can't bless it, right? So when you have your dead turkey in front of you and you say, God bless it, nothing's happening to that turkey. I mean, if that turkey smiles back at you, you need to put it back in the oven. Like, it's not ready. Now, you'll find, in a, if you do a search in English translations, you'll see... Uh, he blessed the food. But if you go and look at the original, very often what the literal says is either uh, they gave thanks for the food, which is absolutely appropriate, or he said the blessing. And sometimes it's just translated as they blessed the food or they blessed this or that. So you can't really bless a church in terms of a church building. You can bless the people in it. You can't bless food. Uh, you know, some people, I've had people ask me to bless their house when they move into a new house, they want a blessing upon it. Well, I can't really bless it, like, you know, as if praying for it now, all the, the mold is going to disappear and, and all the, the eavesdrops are going to be fixed and stuff like that. that, that that's not going to work. So it, it's talking about people, and it's a very upside-down kind of theology that's found. 
in the Beatitudes because they're not the people you would expect. You talk about uh, those who, who are weeping and those who are being persecuted. They don't seem to be blessed. It, it should be like the rich who are blessed and the prosperous who are blessed and the, the powerful and the influential who are blessed. And all of that is turned upside down in the Beatitudes. Matthew also reflects on the relationship to the law in the Sermon on the Mount. So uh, some examples of that. Uh, I just uh, last year taught a course on the uh, Ten Commandments. And we really had to go to the Sermon on the Mount a lot because Jesus talks about uh, different things like murder. Okay, so you're not allowed to murder. Everyone knows Ten Commandments says don't murder. But Jesus said, but if you hate your neighbor, you've already committed it. If you're, if you're really killing them in your heart, you've already done it. Uh, so if you're thinking... Uh, in this class, you know, someone gets a way higher mark on one of the papers than you, and you're just filled with rage towards that person. You see the mark that I gave them, and you see the mark that I gave you, and you're filled with rage, and you're just sitting there in class, you don't hear a word I'm saying about the Gospels. All you're thinking is, I can just put my hands around their neck, and you're just fantasizing about But you're not going to do it, because you don't want to go to jail, and you know what the consequences are. So you just keep it in your, in your uh, fantasy world, about how much you hate that person, Jesus is saying, you've already done it. Now, I, I need to give a, a caveat here, uh, and this is the same one I gave to the Ten Commandments class. That doesn't mean that as soon as you feel that hatred, and you're like, oh, I've already committed murder. Well, I might as well finish it, because as far as Jesus is concerned, you know, I've already done it, so it, it's not going to make it any worse. Um, the police will think that, yeah, you did indeed make it worse, so uh, don't, don't uh, follow through on your feelings there. Uh, but the point is, that the law is not just about outward obedience, that God cares about what's going on the inside. So you can't wish and, and focus on doing these things and just stop short of committing the actual act. And he gives the same example when it comes to adultery. It's not enough to just not physically commit adultery. If you are looking at that person in lust and it just becomes a part of you, that, there's, that's a sign that there's a problem, that something is wrong already, and you need to deal with that. It's not good enough that you technically have not committed adultery. That's, uh, that's not enough. What goes on in the inside is very important. But again, you have to realize, too, that does not to say that, you know, that moment you have that flash of anger that you've committed murder. You know, there, there are certain things that get me mad, you know, one of the things that drives me crazy, one of my pet peeves, is when there's a, a fire truck or an ambulance coming, and that car will drive in front of them and will not pull over. Or, and in fact, will use the rest of us pulling over as an excuse to get around us so they could go, and they're happy to stay in front of the fire truck. That makes me mad. I mean, it just, just happened today, and it drives me crazy. That doesn't mean I murdered the person, but there's that flash of, of anger. And it's the same thing with adultery. It doesn't mean that... You know, you're walking down the street and you just happen to glance and you see someone you think is attractive and just you have that momentary thought of, oh, wow, that person's very attractive. Uh, that doesn't mean you've committed adultery. Uh, what Jesus is talking about there is more that, uh, that ongoing lustful, you know, just longing that's there. Where, you know, I, I mean, I, I've watched many times, you know, walking down the street and, and someone will walk by and you see the person's head turn, and they, stay, they keep turning, and 
They're not watching, and they bump into something because they're looking at this person. Now, you know, you're probably in the, the lust zone uh, there. But just seeing and acknowledging to yourself that someone is attractive is not a, a sin by itself. So uh, there's a lot of that interaction of, of what is really murder, what is adultery, what is lying. And it talks about that as well. Those are some important things that are found there. We also have the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and the classic version of the Lord's Prayer. So the Lord's Prayer is found in Luke as well, but it's slightly different. It's not as easy to pray. Uh, the the uh, Matthew one is a lot easier for us. Now, something to be aware of, the, the final part of the Lord's Prayer that we pray, uh, for thine is the glory, power and the glory, forever and ever, amen. That's not originally a part of this. That was added on later. That doesn't mean... You're sinning when you pray the full traditional Lord's Prayer because it's a good part. There's nothing wrong with it. It just probably wasn't original to what, um, what Jesus taught there. Uh, I actually have a theory about the Lord's Prayer. I took a course on prayer in the New Testament, and one of the things that we learned is that uh, within the Jewish tradition, a lot of the prayers that ended up becoming a part of the Jewish liturgy were actually prayers of rabbis, personal prayers of rabbis, that they would teach their disciples, and then it would enter into the liturgy. And it got me thinking, what if the Lord's Prayer was Jesus' prayer? Because you'll find that uh, there are some people who will say, you know, we shouldn't even call it the Lord's Prayer. It's the disciples' prayer. It's for the disciples. It's not for the Lord. It's not for Jesus. But what if Jesus did pray this prayer? Because we're told that he often went off and he prayed. So... He had to pray something. What did he pray? Why couldn't it have been this? And uh, some people might uh, push back and say, well, there's stuff in there that um, Jesus wouldn't pray. Like He, he wouldn't pray forgiveness uh, for uh, our sins. Well, why wouldn't he pray that? If he's already taken, a part, taken part in the, uh, the baptism of repentance, why wouldn't he do that? Why wouldn't he follow the tradition of Daniel to repent with his people. And the way the prayer is in Matthew is our Father, right? So he's praying he's praying the prayer as together we are praying to our Father. And so we can repent of our sins. We can ask for forgiveness for sins. Uh, we can ask for our daily bread. And so if you take that into account, you could actually look and see how Jesus could have prayed this prayer. Uh, one of the parts of the Lord's Prayer is, um, lead us not into temptation. Well, we're told that at the beginning of his ministry, God did lead him into temptation, right? The Spirit led him to go into the wilderness to be tested. So, if Jesus has already experienced that, that would totally make sense that he would teach his disciples to pray this way, because maybe he would pray that way as well. It doesn't say that Jesus himself prayed this prayer, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was his personal prayer that he taught to his disciples. So there's a number of passages that are found just in Matthew, and uh, this is a, uh, an example of uh, one where there ch Peter is challenged about uh, Jesus paying the temple tax and uh, whether he, he pays it or not. And it seems to be a challenge to Jesus as, like, is, is Jesus following the rules in terms of the, uh, what your responsibilities are for the temple or not? And anyways, the, it ends up that Jesus 
performs this little miracle where uh, Peter goes and gets a fish and finds a, a coin in it, and then it pays the temple tax for Peter and Jesus. And that would really seem to make sense with this concept that, of Matthew being a very Jewish gospel. It just indicates that, that Jesus followed through with this. He wasn't rebelling against all of Israel's traditions, but even was willing to, to give in this way. I'm not going to read uh, all of this passage here, but um, this is from uh, Matthew 20, verses 1 to 16. And it's a parable about uh, a landowner who has a vineyard, and he hires people and uh, ends up giving them all the same amount, whether they work the whole day or just part of a day. <coughs> but this concept of a parable of a vineyard is very Jewish, especially in Isaiah. There's a lot of stuff in Isaiah, but other places as well, where Israel is talked about as a vineyard. And so, as soon as uh, Jesus is talking about that, people are automatically making these Old Testament links. And so, again, this is exactly what we would expect in Matthew. Matthew is the only one who shares this, uh, this particular story with us. Uh, but we can see why he would be interested in that, and his Jewish audience would be interested uh, in it as well. Then uh, in Matthew 21, Then Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all those who were selling and buying in the temple courts, turned over the tables of the money changers and chairs of those selling doves, and he said to them, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you're turning it into a den of robbers. The blind and lame came to him in the temple courts, and he healed them, but when the chief priests and the experts in the law saw the wonderful things he did and heard the children crying out in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what they're saying? Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouths of children and nursing infants? You have prepared praise, praise for yourself. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. So the other Gospels, including John, have the story of the cleansing of the temple. Uh, however, Matthew has the longest narrative of it. He includes more details than the other Gospels, which is what we would expect. Because he's writing to a Jewish audience, uh, they would be very much interested in the temple and Jesus' relationship to it. Now, why is Jesus doing this? Why is he doing something so disruptive? Now, we have to realize is that the temple is not just kind of this monolithic space where it's just temple. There's different sections of the temple uh, depending on who you were. So the, uh, the outer area would be the court of the Gentiles. Um, the, the next area would be the court of the women. And then the next part would be the court of the Jews. So if you were a Gentile, you could only go this certain area. And then it was fenced off. And actually our archaeologists have found one of the signs from the temple where it says, if you go past this point, you will be executed. It is a capital crime. That's actually the only thing that the Romans let the Jews execute people for, is for crossing that line to go beyond where they were allowed to be. Uh, then, then you have the Jewish women are allowed to go a little bit closer, and, but those who could get the most close were the Jewish men, so according to, to holiness. That's how, they, that's how they understood it. 
And so what the problem is, is that there was space for stuff that's going on here. Because what's going on here isn't wrong by itself. Uh, that they have money changers and that they're selling uh, animals. Because uh, the offering for the temple, you couldn't just give any money. You couldn't just bring, you know, your loonies and toonies and here you go, this is, this is good. It had to be a specific thing. I think it's called a Tyrian shekel uh, that you had to give. But it wasn't what the average Jewish person had. So you bring your money, you go to the uh, money changer, you get the kind of money, the currency that's allowed to be given to the temple, and then you're able to, to give. When it comes to the animals, imagine that you're up in Galilee, right? So you're in Galilee, you have to come all the way through Galilee, through Samaria, eventually you get to Judea, get to Jerusalem, and you have to offer your animal. Do you want to bring that an, an animal with you that whole journey? Or would you like to bring a handful of change, get to Jerusalem, get to the temple, pay your money, get your dove, or whatever else you're going to sacrifice, and sacrifice there? That totally makes sense. There's nothing wrong with that. And there was an area that was set aside for that. However, what had happened at this point is they ended up, uh, the people who were doing this took over the court of the Gentiles. And that limited amount of space that Gentiles were allowed to come into the temple was taken over by the money changers and the animal sellers. And that is what Jesus is responding to. And some of the passages that are, that are being quoted here too, when you look at them at the original context, it actually even strengthens that connection with the Gentiles. That part of what's going on here is Jesus is, is upset about how they're, they're robbing the Gentiles of the, the little bit of opportunity to be in God's presence that they had. So it's, it's pretty important. But we're going to look at that a little bit more uh, later on. One of the things that I appreciated in, in Strauss's discussion about Matthew is that uh, Matthew has often been accused of being an anti-Semitic gospel. And there, there are some, I guess you could say, unfortunate passages or passages that have been uh, interpreted, unfortunately. So, uh, for example, when Jesus is on trial and Pontius Pilate is saying, you know, here is your Messiah, and here's your king. What do you want me to do with them? And the people are like, crucify him, crucify him. And they're like, but I find no guilt in him. And uh, the Jews who are there say, well, you know, his blood be on us and our children. Well, that passage has been taken so literally that throughout history, uh, people who claim to be Christians have thought that they're doing good by killing Jews because they're Christ killers, right? And they even say in the Gospel of Matthew that they are the ones responsible, that his blood be on them. So crusaders would go into a community where there was Jewish people and they would just kill them all because why wouldn't you? There they are. You're just you're being a good Christian. Well, that is not at all what Matthew is talking about there at all. That is not meant to be anti-Semitic. Yes, a lot of people have abused those passages, but Matthew is not anti-Semitic. And we need to hold on to the, the idea that, that in this first century uh, here, we have a bunch of Jewish groups, a bunch of people ethnically Jewish with a variety of theological positions, and they're all fighting each other 
It's not about Christians versus Jews. It's not about Gentiles versus Jews. It's this uh, inter-Jewish conflict that's taking place right at the beginning. Now, eventually, it does become uh, a Christian versus Jewish thing. And uh, there's some pretty strong uh, Jewish writings against Christianity. And there's some pretty strong Christian writings against Judaism. And there is some nasty stuff back and forth that goes on. But that's not what Matthew is saying. And I think that Strauss does a great job of, of uh, putting that in context and, and helping us to see that it's not really anti-Semitic. Uh, 